If you live in the United States, you're probably way too familiar with these types of headlines. A lone gunman opens fire in a theater outside of Denver, Colorado. The worst grade school shooting in U.S. history, at least. The shooter walked into the Emanuel AME Church and opened fire. A massacre at a gay nightclub here in Orlando. At least 58 people now dead on the Las Vegas Strip. There has been a shooting. There are just too many to keep up with. Last week, 19 children and two teachers died during a mass shooting at an elementary school in Evalde, Texas. But since then, at least another 17 mass shootings have already happened in the United States. This only happens in this country and nowhere else. Nowhere else do little kids go to school thinking that they might be shot that day. So why are mass shootings on the rise? And why is it so hard for the US government to put an end to this? I'm Hala Mahiadeen, in for Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Some blame mass shootings on mental health or easy access to guns. Some even blame the Constitution. So we wanted to talk to someone who's taken a deep dive into this phenomenon. My name is James Densley. I'm a professor of criminal justice at Metro State University, which is in St. Paul, Minnesota in the US. And I'm also the co-founder of The Violence Project, which is a uh, non-profit organization that studies mass shootings. So James, how did you get into this topic to start with? What made you decide to analyze and study mass shootings? Yeah, so in a previous life, I was actually a middle school special education teacher. I worked in the New York City public schools. And really, that was uh, a job that changed the trajectory of my life. And it also gave me an insight into youth violence. Because on my very first day as a school teacher there was a stabbing in the school playground. And this was also a school that had police in the school building. There were security procedures in place. And it was a real eye-opener as an Englishman being in New York to see this world for the first time that I'd never really seen before. James says his job as a middle school teacher inspired his research into gangs, youth violence and guns. And when you live and work in the United States, youth violence is gun violence. And if you will, one of the most obvious examples of that gun crime was mass shootings. When you travel internationally, when you go back home, do you get the question, why are Americans so obsessed with guns? Why are there so many shootings in in schools? I get that question almost daily. So how do you answer that? You know, with exasperation is really how it works. My friends, my family, colleagues, they ask me this question all the time. What is it about America? I mean, and to the extent where they'll even say things to me like, is it true that you run your children through active shooter drills to rehearse for a shooting? They think we're insane that this is the response that we have, that we put all this on the backs of our school children and our school teachers, instead of actually addressing what appears to be a pretty proximate cause of this, which is the ready accessibility of firearms. 
And so I also look at international examples, the Dunblane massacre in Scotland, for instance, which is one of the most horrific events in British history. Yes, I know that well. From your accents, I would imagine you do. Again, it was a watershed moment in, in British politics. Gunmen killed 16 grade school children and their teacher in Dunblane, Scotland. After a grassroots campaign, the government here banned the private ownership of all handguns. It was a moment where there was decisive, swift action on firearms regulation. There has not been a school shooting in Great Britain since, and that's 26 years ago. In the United States, there are school shootings practically every day. Well, it's interesting you point that out because, yeah, I'm from Scotland. I remember when the Dunblane massacre happened. I remember coming home from school and seeing my parents in tears. And I remember there was a very distinct shift. It's the same in Australia, where a lone gunman murdered 35 people in Port Arthur. Port Arthur. The then conservative Australian government banned nearly all semi-automatic rifles and shotguns and launched a program to buy back more than 600,000 weapons from those who already owned them. That, that's two governments that have done something. Why is it so hard for the US government to do something? Most people point to the fact that the US Constitution is, has a right to bear arms. And so many people think the biggest stumbling block is the Constitution itself. Interestingly, though, I actually don't think that's the biggest problem because the Constitution for 200 years was interpreted as a collective right to bear arms. It was actually the first 13 words of the Second Amendment about a well-regulated militia for the security of the state was the main interpretation. Only in recent years, and particularly after the Supreme Court decision in 2008, which is the Heller decision, has this been taken to mean an individual right to bear arms? The District of Columbia versus Heller was a landmark decision of the US Supreme Court, ruling that private citizens have the right under the Second Amendment to possess a weapon and use it for lawful situations, such as self-defense in a home, even when there is no relationship to a local militia. The Supreme Court threatened to turn many of the nation's gun laws upside down, asserting that an individual's right to own a gun is protected by the Constitution. The case was against the District of Columbia's handgun ban that required people who owned rifles and shotguns to keep them unloaded and disassembled, or bound by a trigger lock. The ruling overturned a gun ban here in the District of Columbia, but its effect is broad and deep, and the ruling did not end the debate. What we've seen since then is much more permissive gun laws across the United States, wide availability and accessibility of firearms across the United States, and rising gun sales to the point now where we have more guns in the United States than we have people. And so the Constitution is not really the problem here. It's the interpretation of the Constitution, which has been leveled by conservative justices, a gun lobby that has convinced an American population that gun ownership is their birthright, and politicians who are beholden to the money of that lobby and are reluctant to break with those political pressures. 
let's talk about your research and the book that you wrote with Dr. Gillian Peterson, The Violence Project, How to Stop a Mass Shooting Epidemic. Now, you compiled an exhaustive database, which has detailed every American mass shooter since 1966. But what's interesting is that you also sat down with these mass shooters in prison, the perpetrators of these killings, and you tried to get to the root of the problem. Why did they do it? So what did they tell you and what were the key findings of your research? We saw a common trajectory on a pathway to violence. In addition to interviewing those incarcerated mass shooters, we also interviewed their family members, people that knew them, their former teachers, their friends. And then we interviewed the survivors of their shootings to really try and understand the perspective as a wraparound, if you will. And what we saw is often childhood trauma that was unresolved in the lives of these individuals. But many people experience those things, don't go on to become mass shooters. So we're not suggesting that's causal, but it's just something that's in the background of these individuals. All the mass shooters experience this noticeable crisis in their life. It overwhelms their usual coping mechanisms, and they really are in a frame of mind where they are hopeless, where they are angry about being hopeless, and they get to a point effectively where they no longer care if they live or die. There's a real overlap between suicidality and these mass shootings. James says that a mass shooting is intended to be a final act. No mass shooter goes into this without thinking it's their end. A mass shooting ends one of sort of three ways. You either take your own life on the scene, you are killed by law enforcement, or you are destined to spend the rest of your life in prison. So it's a desperate act, but it's intended to be viewed by many. So there's an element of this that's performative. And many mass shooters study other mass shooters to understand how they felt and why they did what they did, so they relate to them. But also they copycat elements of their shootings. And then of course the final component of all this is the access to a firearm. The ready accessibility of firearms means that when somebody is on that pathway, the barrier for entry is far lower than it is in any other country. Lots to unpack there, James, but it was interesting you talked about this being a performative event and they want essentially to be seen uh, by as many people as possible doing this. Do you think the media has some role to play in this continuing? It does to some degree, yes. Um, In the aftermath of Columbine, which at the time was the deadliest school shooting in American history, this was in 1999, the people who perpetrated that were on the front cover of Time magazine. And we turned them into celebrities to some degree. The two killers belonged to a group of students that named itself the Trenchcoat Mafia. They wore black trench coats, combat boots, and some wore Nazi crosses. They hated jocks, loved the internet, and were fascinated by World War II. And there is even a following for these individuals now in the darkest corners of the internet. There's an obsession with the Columbine shooting which inspires copycats down the road. 
I think we've learned over time, though, that in addition to fixating on the lives of the shooters, instead we've started to do much more focusing on the victims and their stories, focusing on the survivors and their stories, focusing on the, the, the heroic acts of law enforcement and first responders, doctors, and so on. Let's uh, focus on the most recent uh, attack at, at Rob Elementary School last week. Uh, that was the 137th school shooting in the US so far this year. In 2021, there were 249 school shootings. That's the highest number ever. Are school shootings on the rise, would you say? And, and why is this? Yeah, the data suggests that they are on the rise. Why is it increasing? I think one of the biggest reasons is there were just more guns. And when there are more guns, there's more likelihood that they're going to end up in a school building. The other reason why this might be increasing in the current climate is people are struggling right now. The pandemic, the social media uh, mediated world that we live in, a lot of mental health challenges that young people are going through. I think there's a time that we're living in as well where we don't really trust our institutions anymore. We don't trust scientists. We don't trust journalists. We don't trust politicians. We don't trust the police. And history tells us that at times when you don't trust your institutions, they tend to be violent times in our history. And so all these are contributing factors to what we're seeing right now. And the school is a microcosm of society. The school reflects everything that we do in our daily lives. We hear a lot from politicians about how you can't legislate for evil, and this is about mental health. You've researched this. How much does mental health, the way the politicians describe it, how much has that got to do with these mass shootings? Nobody who perpetrates a mass shooting is living a fulfilled life. They're not mentally well, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're mentally ill either. And even if they have a diagnosed mental illness, that doesn't mean that everything they do is being dictated by that mental illness. We looked at the mass shootings that were directly motivated by hallucinations and delusions. This is probably the easiest way to kind of disentangle how much mental illness is truly driving behavior. And so these psychotic symptoms of hallucinations and delusions we found were responsible for about 10% of the mass shootings in our database. Now, the psychosis was a role as well in about 20% of other cases, but that still means that 70% of the mass shootings in our database weren't motivated by hallucinations and delusions. There was something else going on, a much more complicated picture. So if you only focus exclusively on the mental health aspect, you're missing an awful lot that is also really important and contributes to the problem. So James, it's not just about legislation around guns and mental health, it's also around lobbying and just 445 kilometers from Uvalde, Texas, where that school most recent school shooting happens, the National Rifle Association or NRA has held this past weekend, it's 2022 annual meeting in Houston, Texas. The NRA 
is the most powerful organization lobbying for gun owner rights in the United States. And there are numbers from 2020 that tell us the association spent around $250 million to influence gun policy. How do you think lobbying from organizations like the NRA should be handled? Yeah, this is a big challenge within the United States. The NRA is an institution that has been around for 150 years, and only in the last 40 or 50 of those years have they been so oppositional to what appear to be just common sense restrictions on firearms ownership. The NRA actually supported some of the earliest federal restrictions on firearms, but it's become a much more extremist organization in recent years. And so although they have a following and though they have an influence, they are not as powerful today as they once were maybe a decade or so ago. There is rising opposition on the other side, lobbying groups which are arguing the opposite to the NRA. So the NRA has a big role to play, but I think sometimes we give them undue credit for just how influential they are. And instead, I think it's more around the politicians who are trying to maintain their own position of power within the Senate and within the House and their unwillingness to budge on these issues. Because sometimes even their talking points seem out of touch with even the NRAs. When we see these uh, mass shootings in the United States, we always hear the same uh, speeches and narrative in the aftermath. Different political parties come out and blame it on access to guns, mental health, requests for gun control and so on. And obviously, you hear lots of thoughts and prayers. You've studied this. What are the real solutions? I mean, are there any? Actually, there are. And that's the optimistic thing about this. The last chapter of our book is titled Hope. And in that chapter, we actually outline over 30 different solutions to the mass shooting problem. And we structure them at three levels. So on the individual level, this is things that we can do right now without an act of Congress to make a difference. For example, safe storage of firearms in the home. If you are a gun owner, don't leave the gun unlocked and lying around, particularly if you've got a teenager in the house. Then we look at it as an institutional issue. What can schools, workplaces, communities do about this? This means being more attuned to the warning signs of violence. When you see somebody on the pathway, how do we get the help that they need? And then finally, there is that bigger societal piece. That's the third level. And that is usually where we get stuck because we're wanting there to be big laws and big changes. But there are very clear examples of things that could have prevented violence. It can be something as simple as just universal background checks or red flag laws, which if you've got somebody that shouldn't have a firearm, then we need to make sure that they can't get it. And that's the next step. Do you think there is one simple thing that Americans could do today to solve this? If there was traction on reducing access to firearms, I think it would have a massive impact. So we could monitor everybody's social media posts. We could build mental health infrastructure across the country. We could fortify our schools and spend trillions of dollars turning them into secure fortresses. Or... We could just make sure that you can't access a gun, for example, at 18 years old. 
In the United States, you can't drink until you're 21, but you can own an assault rifle at 18. James, you used to be a school teacher. Today, you're a father and the US is your home. How personal has this topic become for you and how can you or any father out there hope to end it? It's become very personal, actually. So after the mass shooting in the Texas school, my 12-year-old son knows my line of work and he asked me about it and I just didn't have the words for him. You know, he didn't need an intellectual answer from me at that point. He needed to know, Dad, am I going to be okay? Am I safe going to school? And that's heartbreaking. You know, mass shootings are not inevitable, they're preventable. And that's really the key message from the book and from the research, which is we can't grow numb to this. We have to do something about it because the stakes are just too high. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Ney Alvarez with Nagin Oliai, Ruby Zaman, Amy Walters, Alexandra Locke and me, Halima Hiedin. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Aya Almalek and Adam Abogad are our engagement producers. Special thanks to Luis Melgar. We'll be back on Friday.